conductive wire And you were so electric I had no say when you came so near And just passed right through me Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that you can follow Welcome to Geekdom on Instagram at Welcome to Geekdom and on Twitter at Geekdom Pod. There are links to those in the show notes. You can also support the show on Patreon, where I will be releasing bonus content for this podcast and my other podcast, Chat Cemetery. You can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser. There are links to all of those things in the show notes, so be sure to do that. It is a huge help for the show, and I really appreciate it. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Geekdom is Back. I'm your host, Deanna Chapman, and today I am joined by Dan Ozzie, and we are talking all about sellout. Dan, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. We're talking about the biggest book in the world, Sellout. Yes. Let's do it. Sold millions of copies. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, many people, I assume, are tuning into the podcast because they saw Oprah interviewing me and she was crying. And I agree that it's an emotional uh, experience to read. And so, yeah, I'm just glad to be just back to podcast now. Yeah. You know, thank you for doing my little tiny show after talking to Oprah. Well, you know. Your, your future Oprah, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that money would be nice. I would not complain about that. <laughs> but to dive in, I was doing some homework before this, and I know that promotion is not the most fun aspect necessarily of the book process. So for you, writing it, is there a specific aspect of writing the book that you find to be the most fun? Is it the actual writing, the interviewing of other people for it, or the research process? What is it for you? I actually like a, a lot of parts of the processes in different ways. It, it is really hard to, I, I mean, I feel like when I think back on the experience, like years from now, I doubt that I will remember all of the memories of just like sitting up at night typing on my laptop probably what i will remember the most is like the times that i got to sit face to face with people from jawbreaker and at the drive-in and all these bands that i loved for so long and just like have these really um good personal one-on-one -on -one conversations with them and um so yeah i feel like i don't know if that's the part that i am best at or that i like the best but i feel like that's that's definitely what I'll remember from it, you know, like sitting across the table from somebody. A lot of them I met for the first time for this book, you know, like against me, I've known for years, but like Jawbreaker, never met him. <laughs> I wasn't into him since I was 17. That experience was kind of hard to beat. Yeah. So your book with Lord Jane Grace Tranny came out in 2016, right? Mm -hmm. Actually, it's so funny because it's coming up. Uh, it, I think it came out November 8th, which is Laura's birthday like around Laura's birthday mm -hmm. and so that's coming up on five years ago now next week or when this airs it'll probably it might be the day it airs I don't know it might be happy five-year anniversary to Laura's memoir yes and when did the process for sellout start was it shortly after that was it a couple years after that because you know I freelance I work on podcasts that's my day job and it's also my hobby. So I, I don't know. I guess it's all my day job now. But for you, 
obviously you have the newsletter, you have other things going on, you just announced a zine. So what was the process like for getting going with Sellout? You know, you had mentioned at the beginning, like when when it started. And I remember actually the night before the book came out, Laura and I went to like a nice dinner with some people from our publisher on the west side of Manhattan. And I remember when we were walking there, James Murphy from LCD Sound System walked by us and we couldn't figure out if that was a good omen or a bad omen. It was like a it was like a white dove crossing you, you know, I was like, hmm. Uh, but anyway, so we I remember uh, we had this dinner and um, the publisher was like, oh, so Dan, what's next for you? And I was like, you know, I have this other idea for a book. And they were like, oh, like they were really like, do tell. And then I told them and they were like, oh, okay. Um, but yeah, what I told them was the, what would eventually become sellout. So I can, I don't know when it started exactly, but I can tell you that I had it in the back of my brain, at least since we finished that book. Yeah. And with so many music books out there, you know, I was sort of looking at your work cited in the back. And I was like, okay, I have a few of these on my shelf. And, you know, I've read Punk USA. And what was it for you that made you want to tell the story in this way? Because so many music books, especially about punk music and, you know, this music in general and these specific bands, there have been so many Green Day books, for instance, and so many Blink-182 books. How did you figure out that this was going to be the angle you wanted to take? The angle meaning like using this major label hook? Yeah. Well, yeah, like more than just like writing about the bands themselves, I think that idea came first. Like, I want to tell the story of this era that I live through where it was very heated and everybody was up their own ass about what label people were on and what label bands were on. And, uh, you know, I, I figured that just the best way to do that in the most personal way would be if I just took some examples and what happened to those people and, you know, kind of like making themselves justify decisions that they made 15 years ago, which people, you know, loved doing. But, um, but yeah, so that, that just seemed like the, it made the most sense. Like instead of just writing this boring history of like this happened and then this happened and then this happened and this happened, like to me, it was just like, let me tell 11 stories. And I hope when you come out of it, you understand like what this era was like for for bands in this vein. Yeah, the major label discussion has long been a thing. It's like, oh, we can tell when a band went to a major label. And then when they left the major label, just based on listening through their discography and things like that. So I love that that was sort of the major label angle that you took, because you could talk about a whole band's history and not get into as many details from the label side of things because you're more focused on the band and everything. But with these 11 albums in particular, Green Day is a band I really love. So the fact that you also go through it chronologically to show even how things changed over that span of time, I think works really, really well. Was that important to you to just sort of tell these in chronological order as well? For sure. I mean, like I look at it as one... 12-year, 13-year story. And in an ideal world, I would have had, you know, like each chapter would have 
represented an album that came out each year. And I got I got pretty close on that. Like the first three chapters are um, Green Day Dookie, 1994, Jawbreaker Dear You, 1995, Jimmy Eat World, Static Prevails, 1996. Like that was, you know, I wanted to keep going like that. I Like I said, I came pretty close. There were some like Sophie's Choices where like three albums came out in one year that I wanted to cover or maybe one year there was like a gap year. But I came pretty close to that vision for it. And even if you have, you know, two or three albums that came out in the same year, they were being worked on probably in that gap year or something. So I I think that still definitely works out time wise. And the creator economy is a huge topic of discussion these days, even more so than it was during this time period. And now it's like, people are like, yes, go get that money, do what is best for you. But back then, it was just seen as selling out. And do you think the conversation around it has changed because major labels don't exist in the same way now as they did during this time period? Yeah. I mean, like, you know, it's funny. The answer that I've been giving to this question when asked about it is like, yes, it's different now because there's like less money and less opportunities to go around in the music business. So people, I don't think, begrudge people for getting a check when they can, you know, oh, you want to license my song for the bachelor or whatever. Yeah. Okay, cool. Nobody really bats an eye about it. But then I was just thinking too, like right before I logged on, I saw that there was like a, another trending topic about that guy, Hassan Piker, who's like a very popular Twitch streamer. And he keeps getting blowback because like weeks that he bought a house in LA for like $2 million, which, you know, is not like a huge in LA. It's not like that's like a mansion. And so like, yeah, I don't know, but, but maybe that's because like his entire platform is based on like sort of social justice issues and socialism and sort of like taking down the wealthy. So where, when he comes and is like, I have a $2 million house, everybody is like, Oh, I see the guy who, uh, you know, so like maybe that does, maybe that does exist still. Um, it just depends like what, you know, like what you're building your platform on. That guy is building it on a very specific anti-capitalist platform. So whenever he does the most basic functions of capitalism, people, it's like that meme, like that cartoon where it's just like, oh, you claim to hate society and yet you live in one, (laughs) you know, like uh, it's kind of like that. So, you know, I do think that if you went against your principles that you built a fan base for, you probably will hear back um, in the music industry is just a little bit more forgiving than it has been in years past. Yeah. And with the music industry the way it is now, sometimes you don't even need a label. A lot more band members are becoming more business savvy, for example. And I think that helps a lot too, so that when fans see these bands making money, they're like, okay, the band still has this DIY attitude about it because they don't have a label. Maybe they don't even have a manager. Maybe they just have a booking agent or something like that. And you have bands that are able to thrive that way. And we don't have to get into the whole Spotify debate here because that's like a whole different topic for a different podcast probably. But when you were writing this book, did you find any parallels to how things were during this time period to other creative types today like you were saying twitch i don't know like when i saw that hassan piker thing that was like the most 
nostalgic I had felt <laughs> for an argument in a long time, you know, like whether just judging somebody about like how much money they're making or what they're choosing to spend their money on. But I got to say, like, I don't maybe I'm just not like in the conversations enough, but I don't see it as much in music conversations, which is not to say I don't see a, a lot of like pushback from fans. Uh, I think that push and pull does still exist, but now it's like largely about politics and like people's personal choices. If a band is playing a a show that's not masked or not required vaccination, or if they use the wrong like language in their notes, apology, notes app apology or whatever it is. Like, I think there's still an attempt for fans to sort of like police the creators that they like. Um, but I think it's just for different things now. Yeah, I know Twitch recently had, you know, numbers leak on what they were paying people. And it seems like companies like Twitch and, you know, maybe even TikTok are sort of becoming the new quote unquote record labels because they're paying creators. Granted, it's not necessarily all music. There are plenty of music people on Twitch. I know there are a lot of guitar guys doing guitar things on Twitch, and that's become very successful for a lot of them. And I think the main thing is that those things are still able to foster community, whereas signing to a major label, it was all about the money. It wasn't about community and building a fan base even more. It was just like, we want a return on our money. Yeah. You know, often going to a major label seemed was interpreted as like turning your back on your community in the book. I think three chapters in a row or four, maybe Thursday, my cam rise against. Yeah. Maybe three all did the same thing, which is like when they signed to a major label, they posted something on their website or, you know, like it was early internet days. So like their message board or their website or whatever. And they posted these like manifestos to their followers that were like, here's what we're doing. We really appreciate all of your support so far. And we hope you will follow us on this next journey. Uh, If you don't want to, we understand and like, blah, 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 you know, so like, I think that there was like a real sense of like, we don't want to betray our community when they made this like big decision. Fandom is a very interesting thing to me because as someone who spent a lot of time talking about like Marvel and Star Wars and things like that on this podcast as well, there are definitely moments where it's the fan base that is toxic, not necessarily what's being created. And when you were looking into it, did you find that to be the case with some of these bands' fan bases too? Or was it more so just you know, they were upset that it wasn't a DIY thing anymore. You know, like it's it's hard to like gauge how toxic a collective fan base is without the internet. So like now you can go online and being like, wow, I fucking hate Rick and Morty. <laughs> like I like, like whereas in, you know, like 2000 or like 1999, that probably would have been my favorite show and I would have just enjoyed it and n- nothing would have tainted it for me. But now I like, well, I enjoy watching the show and I'll go online and I'll be like, man, I hate myself that I'm like one of these people. So like, I, I, I can't really tell like what, what fan bases were collectively like as, accurately in the 90s because it was a little harder to like measure its temperature you know like 
but you could you could point to specific examples and there's some in the book of like you know just individual fans protesting shows or um you know sending them nasty letters or whatever or throwing beans at them <laughs> or throwing beans at them <laughs> it would be curious to know like like what green day's explosion would be like today because like yeah at the time there were some really angry fans who were like i'm done with this band i'm turning my back on them but they were growing so quickly that their fan base was like escalating and those voices kind of got washed away but had online existed would the tide have turned harder against them because i don't know like it's really hard to say you know they just kind of had to deal with like angry fanzine writers at that time that's fair and i imagine some of these bands on this list probably still even today wouldn't really engage in social media obviously green day and blink and jimmy world they're all on social media you know my cam they're all on there now but if you take a look at you know maybe at the drive-in or something they might be still a little wary of the whole online thing. And, you know, I had interned at Fearless. I want to say it was like at least eight years ago now or something. It was a while ago. But they still had like a bunch of at the drive-in stuff from when they were on the label. And it's just one of those things where they had such a different roster by the time I was there. They had like Motionless and White, Pierce the Veil, and all of these other bands that at times it almost feels like some of these bands could still fly under the radar today as far as like social media presence. There are some people, as I found when I was trying to like contact people that are pretty offline, you know, like, you know, what I think is an interesting one is like, the Donnas, like they were interesting in that, like they weren't, they're not a, a band anymore, really. And so, like, their social media, like, they don't really have a reason to have a social media presence. Yeah. So they don't. <laughs> it's just interesting to think about, like, how these bands would be today, like you were saying. And obviously, we do have some examples of the bands who are still putting out music, but for some of the bands who have maybe, like you said, like the Donnas, who aren't bands anymore, for them, it's like, Eh, we don't need to be on social media, which is probably nice, to be honest. <laughs> You're making me think that, like, actually, at the drive-in probably would have, have had an even harder time. Because in my book, the last, like, six months of at the drive-in's time together seemed really grueling. And they were under a spotlight. And things were difficult. And they had a lot of really bad shows. And I'm just thinking, like, had there been social media and people could have, like, posted videos of some of these really awful shows, it might've just like intensified it, you know, because like, I don't know how much that got around at the time. That's like, Oh, at the drive-in, some of these shows are, are really antagonistic, but if videos were circulating on Twitter and stuff, um, that could have made it, everything seem even worse. You know, like they had a hard enough time holding it together just internally. But like if the world knew about it, you know, like that, that would might've just made everything so much more difficult for them. Yeah, and it's funny because some of the later albums that you talk about, like starting with At the Drive-In, 2000 wasn't that long ago, but still it was like 21 years ago now. So it's crazy to think about how much things have changed just, you know, since that album release for At the Drive-In and how labels have had to adapt. And, you know, we talked a little earlier about how selling out might not be as much of a thing anymore. So 
you know, this is a very specific time period and it ends with 2007, which sort of really feels like when YouTube started coming around and then, like you said, those types of videos did start to exist. So it's like you captured sort of the perfect time period there between 94 and 2007, where we were kind of in this in-between phase because technology was advancing, but it wasn't remotely where it is today. Yeah. And one of the things that I'm proud of about the book is that um, as as the chapters go on, you see the looming presence of the internet. Uh, the internet is sort of like a character in the book. <laughs> um, the internet just uh, starts looming uh, overhead. You know, like there's one part at the end of the Donna's chapter, which would have been early, like 2004 or so, where, you know, like it, to compete with Napster uh, and other file sharing sites, major labels all got their heads together and they were like, people are downloading music for free. How can we combat this? And what they decided was they were like, you know, I think that kids will pay $2 more to have an enhanced CD. It was this thing called um, Dual Disc. Uh, uh, and there was another one called like CD Plus or something like that. But anyways, Dual Disc was the one that they had decided on. And they were like, kids will definitely pay $2 more to have a double-sided CD that has like a music video on the other side. And it ended up just being a disaster because obviously like the internet was unstoppable. It was just a tube of toothpaste that you could not, you couldn't jam the toothpaste back in anymore. We had already started getting music for free and people were not going back. And so that was like one of the ways that it sort of like started to wreak havoc on bands. But then as the book goes on, there's a section about um, MyCam and how the internet really, I think MyCam is like ground zero for uh, the internet breaking a band out. You know, they use it to their advantage. They were so smart about MySpace and, and things like that. And they were sort of like pioneers in that regard. So yeah, I'm like really proud of how you see it change from just like a band signing to a brick and mortar major label and doing their marketing, how whatever it is and being in stores um, to like this like thing where it's like, Hey, we have like a new enemy and, but then also the enemy becomes like a friend, you know, in a way or, or like a, a helper. Bringing up my chem again, that album was sort of like the ultimate adapt or die moment in sort of, you know, this era of music and, I would say 2004, kind of mid-2000s with, like you said, MySpace blowing up, people downloading music for free, and bands really had to figure out how to capture people's attention because you could just download a bunch of stuff off of Napster or even later like LimeWire and stuff like that, and you weren't paying anything for it. So if you didn't end up listening to it or sharing it or anything, it wasn't a big deal. It just went in a file on your computer and you never looked at it or listened to it again. And with MySpace, they had to, you know, fight for people's attention. There were so many bands who like blew up during the MySpace era and just kind of fell with MySpace. And the fact that MyChem was able to keep going, you can really tell which bands were able to figure things out and make that transition because a lot didn't make it through that. 
Yeah. And I mean, there some of the like old guard of music, um, I think looked at MySpace and they were like, nah, this is some stupid trend and we're not doing this. And they would soon learn that they were doing it at their own peril because, um, you know, bands like My Chem, My Chem came in and, and completely used it to their advantage, just like made things happen for themselves so much faster than they probably would have without the aid of, you know, viral um, posts and, and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, there was a real changing of the guard at that time. And it was like a matter of like, who's going to be smart enough to see the writing on the wall and who's going to try to like cling to the old world of the music industry. Mike Hem also did a fantastic job visually standing out from a lot of other bands. Because if I try to think about music videos from that time period, not a whole lot stick in my mind the same way that like my chem videos did because they would go all out with the production on those. And, you know, this was back when there was still more of a budget for music videos and, you know, maybe MTV still played them. But I think the labels are a lot at fault too for the MySpace era because like you said, old guard, they just didn't want to deal with it. They were like, nah, it's fine. And that's when we also saw big labels start to sort of crumble and they all had to consolidate. There's probably what, like three big labels left and most things are then a subsidiary now. Yeah. My chems label was actually very good at making it work for them. Um, it's so good. In fact, that they were cited in a business book, uh, the title of which I'm forgetting, but it is in my book. This is me trying to sell my book, I'm not trying to give too much away, but, um, <laughs> Yeah, they were mentioned in a book about marketing, like business okay. marketing. And uh, they they were talking about how Mike Hem was one of the first bands who, you know, like it, it, traditionally like labels would pick the singles and they would put them out into the world and they'd be like, hey, kids, this is what you're going to like this week, like this single by whoever. But Mike Hem did something different in that like they would kind of like scatter their tracks about online, like the label, um, you know, would give it to like pure volume or absolute punk or whatever it was. And they, they would just watch the numbers and see like which songs are resonating. And then it was like, Oh, uh, a Helena is popping off. That's going to be the next single. So instead of like being the gatekeepers and determining like, Oh, we're going to tell what kids, what they like. It was the opposite. It was like, we're gauging what kids like, and then those will determine the singles. So, you know, their label was actually like pretty smart because I'm sure at that time, if you were like, Hey, uh, we're going to put our out. Al- we want to put our album online for free uh, or like our songs <laughs> online for free. You know, like that, that was still the time where a label would have been like, what? <laughs> um, so it, it did seem like their, their uh, label was like willing to uh, help them use the internet. And, you know, that kind of just goes back to the whole adapt or die thing. They were willing to try something and they had the perfect band to try it with. Honestly, you know, that might not have worked for, you know, just a, random radio rock band or something like that, even though my chem was on the radio. But I think you know what I mean by a radio rock band. because They captured the zeitgeist, you know? Yeah. The, the world was just like ready for a new kind of music. And they were listening, they were ready for like a new kind of way of listening to it. And my chem was just like, here we are, right, right place, right time, you know? Yeah. And I love that the book shows that progress too as you go through it because 94 and 2007 still very very different 
time periods because 94, you don't have any of that stuff going on. And, you know, from what I've read so far, it's like, okay, Gilman put a ban on (laughs) major label bands playing the venue. And that was sort of one of the bigger ways they sort of not necessarily revolted against Green Day in particular going to a major label, but that was just their way of keeping things the status quo. Yeah. I mean, some people don't want success. Like not all (laughs) art is meant, you know, like not everybody creates art to be like a commercial success. Yeah. Some people make art because they enjoy it or they like being at the level that they are and, and do not want growth. And that's not, you know, a knock on anybody. That's how different people interpret what they want. Green Day just thought that they could do better. That's all. And both are totally fine. You know, some of us just want to make things and pay rent. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. And Green Day just saw a path and they, you know, they they had a lot of confidence in themselves too. Just like, no, we can do this, which was really uh, impressive at the time because like uh, there weren't a lot of like people before them where it had worked out. So I don't know like where they caught their confidence from, but they just felt like we're growing and we could grow even bigger than this. And I doubt that they ever dreamed that like they would get as big as they became, but they yeah. just like seemed to know, like everybody I talked to was just like, they just like knew like the, the guy, Rob Cavallo who produced their record. And he also signed them. He says something in the book to the effect of like, you know, most bands come to a major label and they're like, Oh, we're coming to a major label so you can help us be big. But green day was a band who was like, we're going to be big. And if you help us, like we might get there faster. So sure, we'll sign with you. You know, like just that confidence is so envious. I love it. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of just casual fans probably never realized that they were just sort of built different than some of the other bands in that sense. Because like we were talking about earlier, some bands are just becoming more and more business savvy. And you could see that in some of these bands back then too. And that is why they became so successful because they had this, not necessarily an understanding of the business, but an understanding of themselves. For sure. And their audience too. And I think you can just like sort of feel when something is growing. You can just feel it when it's your life and you're just like monitoring it all day. Uh, Not to be so like arrogant, but sometimes I feel it with this book, which is as we're talking about to be published. And I'm like, hmm, this feels growing like maybe there is something you know like you can just sort of like feel when the gears of life want to shift and green day was really smart because like pre-internet they were playing b markets you know they were playing like allentown pennsylvania or whatever it was and like um just building up audiences and they would go there a second time and there would be twice as many people and then they'd go back a third time and there'd be even more people so they just definitely like laid the groundwork so that when they went to a major label Every all the stars were aligned. All they had to do was just like knock that first domino over. Yeah. You can definitely tell when bands just have that ambition too. And you hear about it when bands don't as well. So you kind of get both ends of things a lot of the time. And, you know, Dan, for you, what made you realize that this idea that you had was going to be an entire book because you easily could have, you know, separated these things out and posted them one by one or something through your newsletter or something like that. Because, you know, one thing I've noticed is how big Substack is betting on 
creators lately. I follow a lot of comic book news, so I've seen them signing deals with comic book creators and things like that. So for you, when do you know that an idea is going to be something for the newsletter, something for a zine, or something as ambitious as this and a full-length book? Hmm... I don't know. Some ideas feel very big and you want to like give them the time and space that they deserve. Um, And some things just seem sort of like silly one-offs. And I don't know. I guess like there are some things that I just only have a small amount of um, like patience for, I guess, you know, and like maybe that's just a that that's something worth occupying one day. But this this book was like, you know what? I think I have two years of thinking about this in me. Um, so yeah. No, I totally get that because my other podcast is a Stephen King podcast. And I went through all of his works, most of his works chronologically, including the adaptations and everything. So I knew that was a thing that was going to take, you know, a set time period, which was about three and a half years by the time I'm caught up with everything. And, you know, this podcast, even though this is episode 256, I think of it as more bite-sized chunks because I'm talking to different people about different things every episode. It's not all necessarily the same. And I think sometimes that's how books happen. It's like every once in a while you have ideas that you want to spend a few hours on a day on, like you said, and then other times you have like this big ambitious thing that you want to get done. And I think, you know, it's important for a lot of creators to understand themselves, whether it's you as a writer, bands, and understand what you want to get out of this idea you have. Is a band just going to release a single? Are they going to release an EP? Do they really need a full album? Or do they really only have, you know, a few ideas that they could just put out as singles. Yeah. I mean, I, I took a very go big or go home on this approach on this book. So we'll see if it pays off. Well, a lot of the bands that you talk about had to take that same approach because sure, EPs were around, but they weren't really, at least in my opinion, EPs were never like a big ordeal that labels made a big deal out of or anything like that. It was sort of like a step to a full length album. So for a lot of these bands, they came about in the age of people listening to full albums, you know. Sure, there were singles and things like that, but anyone who is a Green Day fan has listened to Dookie in full, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I kind of hate that we've moved towards like these little bite-sized chunks. You know, like I, I'm a big album appreciator, and I, I like hate taking it in piecemeal if there's an album i'm really excited about that i know i'm just like gonna buy it or you know when it comes out i will i'll avoid the singles that get released in advance because i'm like i I just want to enjoy the whole album even that new paul thomas anderson movie i went to two movies recently and they showed the trailer twice and even even that to me i was like i was gonna see this movie i didn't even i didn't want to see the trailer like i don't want a little I don't need little crumbs to like keep me going. I'm I'm in for yeah. a new Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Um, so the same thing with like a, a band that I really love. Like I, I just I'm just gonna buy the record. I don't need to be 
talking about a new single every other week for three weeks or for three, you know, three months or whatever. I feel like too, with some of these albums, you know, Dookie has a lot of songs that people know because people weren't focused on two or three singles. Whereas now I'll go check out an album and I'm like, I've heard of two of these songs this entire time. Like what's going on here? And I'm someone who, when I do have time to listen to music because I work on so many podcasts that time is few and far between these days. I do enjoy listening to an album top to bottom, but at the same time too, like I'll look at an album length and I'm like, this is over an hour. What are you, what are you doing to me? <laughs> and then, you know, you go look at, you know, Green Day's early stuff and you're like, 27 minutes. Thank you. <laughs> nah, man, I'll, I'll put a record on you know, just a good Sunday listening experience for sure. If you have the time. That's fair. Yeah. Sometimes I'm just like, I spent eight hours editing. I am not listening to an hour long. Sure. You just probably don't want to hear anything anymore, you know? Yeah. You know what you should do in those cases is read a book. And from what I hear, there's a fantastic book out now <laughs> called Sell Out, the major label, blah, 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 that blah, 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 by Dan Ozzy. I don't know. <laughs> yes. Everyone should read that book. This is just me trying to jam in my, uh, you know, my little, <laughs> my little promo sound bites here and there. I love it. Is there anything that you haven't had the chance to talk about with this book yet that you would like to talk about? I'm probably interview number 500, so I know it might be hard. <laughs> no, no. You, you caught me at a good time where I'm like warmed up, but I'm not like so over interviews yet. <laughs> So I'm like in that good middle period. I don't know this if this is like what uh, this is something like worth talking about it. But I literally just looked over at my copy of the book, and one thing that I haven't like publicly said yet was that it was such a pain to make the cover. And I was just texting with her now, and I want to give her a shout out. My friend Amanda Foats took the cover photo. It's gorgeous. Like, and I was so worried because every book that is about punk, even if it's a good one has these like really cringy <laughs> fonts you know like the stencil font or like there's like a, like a mo like the anarchy symbol for a or whatever and they're just like so i, I don't want to be caught on the train reading it you know um and so i was so worried because we went through so many like rounds of arguing about the cover and then like we just landed on this and i'm just so proud of the way it looks. I know I'm holding this up on an audio podcast. But so <laughs> I'm just like so proud of the way it looks. It's just this like ominous, menacing black brick of a book with Amanda's beautiful photo on the cover. Um, so yeah, that's that's the weird little aspect of it that I'd love to shout out right now. I love that, you know, it also points straight at your name up at the title. It's just, it flows. Right. <laughs> Everything should be pointing at my name. I'm always saying that. <laughs> it's like that line on The Simpsons where he's giving notes about Itchy and Scratchy and he's like, whenever Poochie's not on the screen, everybody should be asking, where's Poochie? <laughs> <laughs> so I agree. Everybody, everything should be pointing at my name for sure. Look, I love a good bold font too. It makes it nice and easy to read. You don't have to like hold the book right up to your face to know what it's trying to tell you. <laughs> yeah. No, I love it. I really do. It just like hits like the, the title just like hits you. I wanted it as big as possible. Yeah. They kept showing me covers and I was like, bigger, bigger <laughs> than that. <laughs> like take up the whole book if we have to. Um, so yeah, it just looks so cool. It's like, I'm hesitant to use this word, but it's just like iconic to me. I'm like, I've seen 
I've seen it thousands of times at this point, and it's just never, I never get sick of it. It's its perfect. I've looked at many, many book covers here. So I will agree that this, this one definitely stands out. And I have music books over to my left here, and I keep looking at them. And I'm like, yep, that's a lot of stencils and a lot of fonts that are very hard to read. <laughs> yeah, right? And so much of my approach to the writing of the book was to just eradicate all this bad. Like I read a lot, like a lot of the books about punk. There are some good ones. Don't get me wrong. Um, there's a one uh, called um, Give Me Something Better, which is this like oral history of the Bay Area. I'm like looking at the books that I read either <laughs> to inspire myself or for research. Larry Livermore's How to Ruin a Record Label is really good. Sam McFeeters' Mutations. Um, there's a bunch of like really good books, but... I was like looking for so, at so long at my bookshelf that I've completely derailed myself. Oh, but yeah, there are a lot of good ones, but I read a lot of unnamed bad ones that just made me cringe upon like reading the writing of it. I just did. I didn't like. And so a lot of my day to day was just like, I want to write a book that doesn't make me cringe. I want to write a book that's just really well-written and doesn't use this like hokey rock music vernacular. And so when we were doing the cover I was like, well, I want the same thing. I want a cover that doesn't make me cringe. I don't want to have like, I don't want the S on the sellout to have a mohawk on it or whatever, <laughs> you know, like I want it to be like a really, you know, like I put a lot of like reverence into this book and I just wanted the title to reflect that. I mean, the, uh, the cover to reflect that. I'm looking at my beautiful book right now. Sorry. <laughs> Honestly, I think a cover can be very overlooked, especially with music books. And, you know, there are certain books that have been reprinted with many different covers in like the fiction world, for instance. So you have so many different ones there. It's kind of like, okay, well, whatever. It's Stephen King. People are going to buy it. They're yeah. not going to, you know, focus on the cover as much. But I have noticed that same thing with music books in particular. I'll look at the cover and I'm like, where's the title? <laughs> the, w the weird thing is when it gets sold to like a UK publisher and they, they like, you know, when, when you sell a book, like I think Laura's book has been published in like maybe six or seven countries, you know, and, and they just buy it and they do like what they want with it. And so, but they'll always like put this like cover on it, you know, like we, once you sell it, you don't really, I don't think have much control over like the cover that they're going to use. And like the UK ones, especially, I'm always like, man, you Brits are so weird. Like, where did, <laughs> why, why did you make this covers like this? Like, it's just not how I would have done it, but like, you know, but Maybe they know their audience and that's what British people like looking at. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe this will get sold into a, another country and it'll end up with some totally cringy cover and I'll disavow it completely. You'll be like, nope, I had no say in this. Wasn't me. I didn't do it. Yeah, they'll they'll use the like uh, Warp Tour 99 font on it and I'll just be like, oh. <laughs> exactly. Well, Dan... Congratulations on this book release. It is definitely a feat anytime any book gets released, in my opinion. Thank you. And you were saying before we started, this is like the greatest book you've ever read, like the number one best book number that one. you've ever read. We'll pretend That's I don't so nice host the Stephen you. King podcast and don't read his books. <laughs> yeah, no, you said, you said I made Stephen King look like an illiterate monkey, <laughs> I think, before we started. That's so nice of you. Again, like it's flattering. I'll put it on the on the back cover of the paperback edition. Better than Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> you can quote me on that. 
Great. I will. (laughs) Any final words for anyone who is looking to write a music book or any book in general? God, make sure your sanity is at a manageable level because it's going to drop precipitously (laughs) over over the process of writing it. Perfect. Well, Dan, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you.